This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Lustein. Today, it's election day in dozens of local communities across the state. In Savannah, a victory for incumbent Van Johnson could pave the way for a statewide run in just a few years. I'm Patricia Murphy. In Ohio, voters are going to the polls today to decide whether to protect the right to an abortion in the state's constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Georgia Congressman Rich McCormick has given a cold shoulder to colleague Marjorie Taylor Greene's second effort to censure Rashida Tlaib for anti-Semitic remarks. McCormick is introducing his own motion to censor the Michigan Congresswoman. We'll talk about all these subjects and more with Republican strategist Stephen Lawson. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Guys, I can, I'm proud to say I have recovered from my daughter's bat mitzvah <laughs> over the weekend. Uh, both of you guys were there. It was such an honor to have both of you there to celebrate my daughter's coming of age. Uh, Greg, first of all, just the service itself. Nicole did a spectacular job doing her Torah portion doing her Haftor. She had the Hebrew down cold, and she did it with such confidence and energy. It was really thrilling uh, uh, to watch that. And the party with what? How many girls were there who were friends of hers? About 60. Yeah. And maybe about five boys. So <laughs> I, I realized I'm getting a little old for that kind of party, but it was really a wonderful thing to get to watch. Patricia was right in the middle of the mix. And one of my favorite pictures is when they were uh, lifting my wife, Cheryl, on the doing the horror. And there's this picture of Patricia either in horror or glee. I couldn't tell. <laughs> Hands over her mouth looking. I was simultaneously horrified and entertained and really terrified for Cheryl. She's so tiny that your friends I thought were just going <coughs> to fling, fling her into the next county at a certain point. But they were also literally like, holding her feet so she didn't fly away. Oh, she had to be rescued. And it all, yeah, it, it all worked. I mean, so much fun. Thank you for including me, Greg. That was so sweet. I, I felt, um, also, you, uh, we have confirmed that Nicole is an extrovert, just like her dad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one quick thing about that. Uh, your rabbi, Rabbi Heller, uh, made note of the fact there were a number of journalists at the service in his sermon. And I actually thought he made a really interesting point about that in in talking about the war in Israel and talking about the uh, the horrendous attack by um, by uh, Hamas and the way in which they murdered Israelis. And he said these are images that he had looked at at one point because he felt he had to. But he felt this is the sort of thing that's so important for journalists not to put out into uh, the world. And he said, we need to be careful about how we perpetuate some of the imagery and some of the hatred that um, we hear from people who are anti-Semitic and the like. And I thought that was a really meaningful sermon. I did too. And another thing he said, which is an adage that we all should remember, uh, whether you're a journalist or not, is you don't have to read the comments. You don't have to go dive into that rabbit hole on Twitter and doom scroll and read every comment because it can get to you. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. 
Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Well, today we are also joined by Stephen Lawson, a veteran Republican strategist who has worked for a long line of Georgia and Florida Republican politicians, to name a few, Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott, Kelly Leffler, Burt Jones, Mike Collins, and Tyler Harper. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, important elections are underway in cities across Georgia right now. Let's talk first about a race we're closely watching on the coast in Savannah. Van Johnson is running for a second term as mayor. Patricia, let's talk about what we think re-election could mean for Van Johnson's future for someone who is often mentioned as a potential statewide candidate down the road. So anybody leading a high-profile city in Georgia, including Savannah, to win statewide uh, in the future, you're going to need to win at the local level consistently. And Van Johnson was a longtime member of the Savannah City Council, obviously now has already uh, got one race for Savannah mayor under his belt successfully, has had, I think, a largely successful tenure in Savannah throughout COVID even, that city is also experiencing really explosive growth. And that puts a lot of pressure on the lower income uh, members of that community as well. And Johnson, um, so far so good, you know, but but these are the types of races without really uh, reliable polling can kind of surprise you sometimes. So um, anybody looking at Johnson statewide for the future, and he's very connected, by the way, with the White House, very well connected with other statewide Democrats here. They're looking for a win from him. Um, If he can post it down there today, he will rocket to the top of a statewide race. And Bill, when Patricia says very connected with statewide Democrats, she means it. There is a number of Democratic leaders, Stacey Abrams, former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, party chairwoman, Nakima Williams, who all went down to Savannah to stump for him. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. My question, Greg, is um, to what extent, what does it mean that all of those prominent Democrats did in fact come down and campaign for him? Uh, is it a, was there a, and it was, they came late in the contest. So does it mean they saw some internal polling that suggested he needed as much outside help as he could get? Did it mean that they recognize what Patricia said, that eventually Van Johnson in winning re-election could be a prominent uh, uh, Democratic candidate for some statewide office? But he certainly did draw them out. I think it's a take-nothing-for-granted approach. And Stephen, yeah. you've yeah. – you've, You've advised clients, you've run campaigns, you've been there that kind of last moment in a campaign where you're not sure if you believe the polls. And in Savannah, there's been scant polling to which to rely on. Yeah, well, I think it's also an indication, a couple things. One, Patricia hit on the significant growth that you've seen in the Savannah area in Chatham County. I think it's important to take a step back and remember that in a battleground state like this, how important of a, of a Democrat bastion Chatham County is to winning statewide. So uh, on the one hand, certainly for Van Johnson looking ahead to his electoral future, but also for people like Stacey Abrams, Nakima Williams, Keisha Lance Bottoms, they, they, they're looking down the road looking to potentially need his support. And I think it's very uh, astute for them to kind of go and, and showcase that. Yeah. I, oh, oh, continue. Well, I was going to say, I was going to bring you in. Patricia, <laughs> well, wanna, thank you so much. I want to talk about some of the <laughs> themes we're seeing in Savannah that we could see in statewide races and races down the road, and especially next year, because um, Van Johnson's challenger, Keisha Gibson Carter, who, by the way, has been in the race for almost two years. This has been a long-running feud. Uh, she's been talking, asking voters if they feel safer 
is public safety. We certainly have seen in recent elections, particularly in 2020 and 2022, public safety being front and center. Oh, and the Atlanta race uh, that Andre Dickens won, public safety was by far the top issue in that race here in Atlanta. And it wasn't even close. It was public safety up over 60 percent as people's most important issue and uh, the economy, jobs, those types of things really a lot lower. People really do look to their elected mayor as the first line of defense on a public safety issue. And Savannah, certainly just like all large metro and even rural areas here in their state, they've really had public safety issues um, that they've been grappling with since COVID and beyond. And so I think that'll be a really important theme uh, to be hitting. But I also really do agree with Stephen that some of these late in the race endorsements have as much to do with the person making the endorsement because obviously it look he's looking strong for election there's no downside to skipping down to savannah and making an appearance with a large crowd of democrats who are going to be thinking ahead to the 24 elections to 26 elections and so i think that um it's a good sign for johnson's future that he was able to bring down those big names because they probably are looking to get something out of it themselves um I think it's fascinating, this kind of grudge match that's developed literally over uh, four years between uh, Johnson and Keisha Gibson Carter. She started going after him uh, from when he took office. She was in city council. She immediately uh, uh, began uh, taking sides against everything that he stood for. And as you point out, she launched this campaign two years ago. So it's really fascinating that she is so adamantly opposed to uh, Van Johnson. Yeah, our colleague Adam Van Bremer asked Van Johnson about the state of the race, and his word was his answer was one word: tired. <laughs> his campaign has <laughs> all been about what he calls dignity over drama, yeah. and he's been trying to focus on higher wages for city employees and efforts to combat violent crime. Okay, let's let's move beyond Savannah now, because Patricia, you wrote in a column a few weeks ago. And I'm quoting you here. Make no mistake that local races can have a bigger impact on your day-to-day life than a House speaker race ever will. That's why I always encourage people to think globally, vote locally. Talk about that a little. So we know lots of political junkies in our world. People will seek us out to talk about Joe Biden, to talk about Donald Trump, to talk about Ted Cruz, to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene. However... Equally as important or more important to people's literal daily lives are those school board races, county commission, mayor's races. They are going to decide your millage rate. They're going to decide what kind of schools your kids are getting into or out of, um, making all kinds of really important and quick decisions about the place where you're living. So here in Georgia, um, we tend to have elections just about every year. It's very easy to lose track of who is up when. This particular year in the metro Atlanta area, we have Atlanta school board races. Those races are now every two years. They're going to alternate between the even years and the even uh, number districts and the odd number districts. So Atlanta school board, Brookhaven mayor, one of those really fast growing Uh, suburban now cities um, that are going to have a really important Brookhaven mayor's race. Um, Also in the Alpharetta and Milton Milton areas, that Milton City Council race, which Stephen Lawson has played a part in. um, Those are really interesting races because, again, these are cities that people have created whole cloth to be the kind of community they want to live in. And then they've got some super important decisions to make when they're choosing these people at lower level offices, city council, mayor, but they really are important. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's it's the decisions that are closest to the voters, right? These are things like potholes and tax increases and uh, zoning issues. Zoning, and, for sure. Right, mm-hmm. that, that really impact, you know, people's everyday lives, certainly more than, you know, a resolution in Washington, D.C. And so they, they have a tr- tremendous impact. I think one of the things I'm looking at in some of these local elections is is one sort of turnout, right? You know, I think we 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 can all agree we've seen tremendous growth in the state, particularly in metro Atlanta counties. Uh, and these are the folks looking ahead to 2024 and 2026 who are going to end up potentially deciding who the next president of the United States is. Where is that growth occurring? Right. What are those turnout numbers this year look like as opposed to two and four years ago? I think that's going to be really interesting to see. But no, you're totally right, Patricia. In, in, in some of these elections, particularly in Milton, you know, where we're doing some work, you know, they are the only city in Fulton County to break off and start running their own elections. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out. Uh, you know, the, the costs are already skyrocketing in that. So mm-hmm. I think it's, the grass is not always greener. Uh, but it, yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting to see um, what kind of motivations people are going through as they go to the And expect a lot more coverage on those costs coming up in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. But Stephen, I want to stand with you for a second because you've run statewide campaigns, you've been involved in national campaigns, but a local campaign for a city council race in a, in a suburb like Milton is in a completely different animal. It's hard, much harder to predict. It's much harder to see the sort of trend lines. It's much harder to reach voters in some cases and energize them to go out to the ballots and vote. Yeah, but in a lot of ways, it's a lot more interesting, to be honest with you. There's <laughs> issues that uh, you would never really think about. And and for me, I think it's it's allowed me to really, to Patricia's point, tap into some of those things that people are experiencing in their everyday lives, right? Uh, running elections, right? Transparency, accountability, uh, tax increases, uh, zoning issues, all of those sorts of things. And it lets you really get a nuanced feel for for what voters, their motivations, their their wants, wishes, desires. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting uh, a turnout. You know, I, I, I went through an evolution in my thinking about the kind of political uh, figures I wanted to cover over the years. Like you, Patricia, I love being able to go up to the Hill, cover Congress, go to the White House, cover the White House. It felt like there was a lot of excitement in doing that. There were important issues that could be dealt with. But the more and more that Washington got gridlocked and less and less was accomplished, I started to realize what you said, uh, both you, Stephen, and you, Patricia, the real important races in many ways are mayor's races, city council races. Mayors actually have to make day-to-day decisions. They don't get to go into a committee meeting on the Hill and find that they're being fought by, uh, by uh, the other side on a given issue. They have to make practical decisions, and that's why over the years— I've really come to think much more highly of how tough a job it is to be mayor, but how crucial it is. Mayor, school board must be the toughest job in town right now. These are also very low paid positions. But if you went to your average highly engaged voter and showed them a picture of Senator Josh Hawley, they would know who that is. If you showed them a picture or asked them which school board race is up for election today and which district are you in 
they may not know that answer. So I do try to really encourage voters who care so much to really make sure you take that attention all the way down the ballot, even in these crucial off-year elections. Um, One other piece of this election that I'm following carefully is the fact that we have groups like New Georgia Project Mm -hmm. and Kelly Leffler for the first time really getting involved with her Greater Georgia organization really pushing turnout and earlier registration among either progressives or conservatives. And Kelly Leffler's group has targeted specific areas, including Savannah, including Brookhaven, where they are pushing. um, They're not allowed to pick candidates or endorse candidates, but they are allowed to reach out to conservative or progressive voters and say, these are the issues you should be thinking about when you're going to the election. And by the way, Election Day is this Tuesday. Yeah, and we should note Kelly Leffler's group is called Greater Georgia. They're not endorsing candidates, but they're texting to turn out voters and races they've identified as most competitive. And Stephen, as someone who used to work for the former senator, uh, you know, this is part of her sort of grassroots effort to get more involved in politics and also help drive out Republican turnout as sort of a counterweight to Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Group. Yeah, look, I, I think Senator Leffler has done a, a tremendous job staying in, in the fight, staying um, you know on the field and, and really helping, helping to move the ball forward. She, you know, after her election in 2021, um, you know, she didn't take her ball and go home. She stayed involved. She stayed engaged. And she really stood up an organization to counter what uh, Stacey Abrams has done so effectively uh, for Democrats. And I think it's a testament to her. Uh, you know, you you look at the direction those two senators went. You know, David Perdue certainly made some decisions and went one way. And Senator Leffler, I think, ha- has has been positive and productive and stayed involved. And, and look, I think it's a testament to her hard work and ethic that she is focusing on local elections, Bill, just like we were talking about well, how important well, that is. Also, Stephen, I think it said a lot about her maturity yep. in the world of politics. I mean, here's a woman who was appointed senator, yep. of course, by Brian Kemp, out of no, with no background in politics, um, struggled after winning election, figure out where she stood. She became, you know, enamored of Donald Trump. That hurt her in the long run. But as you say, instead of getting out of it all, she came back and grew and began to recognize that if you really do want a life in politics, there's a lot more to it than just getting on the ballot and running a campaign yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think she shied away from that work, you know, and I think it's so important whether irregardless of what side of the aisle you're on. People stepping forth, putting their time, effort, resources in to get raising that awareness, right? Raising uh, awareness about local elections, about who's running, about some of the things that that are going on. And certainly I think she's done that. I think she's going to continue to do that. And and no matter what she decides to ultimately do, I think uh, she's certainly made a positive impact uh, since uh, 2021. And it certainly does set the stage if she does want to run for statewide office in 2026. I always tell people there's a reason that Kelly Leffler is spending her weekends in Moultrie and not Monaco. <laughs> and she could do either. She, she could, could do either. either. I do want to note a text we just got from State Representative Terry Anulowitz of Smyrna, Democrat, former city Smyrna council. Races, yeah. Yes, former, former city council uh, uh, councilwoman in, in the city of Smyrna, who notes that she got yelled at so much more when she was in city council when she was in the state legislature, and that goes to show you that. That when you're talking about these local races, you're talking about people who are your neighbors, who you see my mayor and done what he texted last night to remind me to vote. Right. I see I went to the polling place and I knew at least 60 percent of the people in there this morning. So it's very close to home. Patricia. Yeah. She said that her campaign slogan ought to be yelled at by strangers since 2007. (laughs) Before we take a break, I do want to talk about 
kind of sad note. One city that won't be voting at all is Gainesville, where so few candidates filed to run for the upcoming city council and school board races. The election was officially canceled since the races were already decided. Yeah, you know, I heard the mayor of Gainesville on with Martha Zoller, and he mentioned obliquely that, well, you know, we just didn't have enough people to to build an election. So there, there won't be an election in Gainesville. And so I followed up with him to say, well, I don't I don't really know what you're talking. What do you mean? And he said they only had one candidate per uh, council seat or per school board seat. They None of them had challengers. Either it was an open seat with a single person interested um, or it was an incumbent not getting challenged. And he said he felt like um, just a combination of the grief, the low pay um, and uh, just people's uh, not unwillingness, but almost even fear of losing or even fear of winning and then getting attacked later. It's really raised the bar for people willing to get into these local municipal races. And um, he, for one, was uh, disappointed, although it does save Gainesville a little bit of money because they're not going to have to field that race. But at least they're saving the money. But he would like to have not. I know so many candidates from both sides of the aisle who would be good political candidates who have been repelled by that. While still to come on Politically Georgia, abortion rights supporters have been winning ballot initiatives around the nation, but the biggest test yet could be coming tonight. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia, We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join our community right now, this very moment, by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and you can get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, so you always know what's really going on. One of the most watched races in the nation isn't a battle for governor or control of a state legislature, but it's a ballot initiative in Ohio for a constitutional amendment to preserve abortion rights. Supporters of abortion rights have been on a winning streak around the nation in six out of six states since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, winning even in conservative states like Kansas. But Ohio is the biggest test yet, Bill, in part because of what critics say is the confusing language on the ballot referendum. Yeah, it's, it's not only the confusing language on the ballot referendum, it's the previous ballot that was uh, put before voters. The first vote, uh, before they even got to today, was a question as to whether you could have a simple majority uh, uh, decide uh, an issue, uh, a, a, an amendment to the Constitution, or whether you needed a super majority. And, uh, of course, the simple majority won, which set up today's vote. But because of the language back then where the vote was, no, we don't want a supermajority, but today the vote is, yes, I do want abortion rights to be expanded in Ohio. It's created some confusion, and both sides have tried very hard to convince voters of which way the um, initiative reads and what they need to do. Yeah, I think the reporting on that, because there is that level of confusion, I don't know if we'll get a clear answer coming out of Ohio 
is this a great litmus test for whether or not abortion is the galvanizing issue that Democrats 100 percent believe it is? I think Virginia is a state that we could look to uh, today and with results tomorrow. All 140 of their legislative races are on the ballot, and many of those races are singularly about abortion rights. Governor Glenn Youngkin is not on the ballot, but he has put forth a 15-week abortion ban as a proposal, and having both houses as Republican would make a big difference in his ability to do that. Um, Democrats think if it's the only issue on the ballot or the most important issue on the ballot, that's a winner for them. But here in Georgia, um, in 2022, it was an issue, but not the issue. And so, Stephen, I'm curious what you think from a Republican strategist perspective. Uh, I don't know that Georgia tracks consistently with kind of the national battleground strategy as abortion as an issue that's important or even a, a huge winner for Democrats based on where it falls um, in, a, in a list of priorities. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you know, I think looking back in, in 2022, there were so many other issues, right, driving and setting the stakes, obviously, with the tremendous job that Governor Kemp did during covid uh, with job creation, obviously his approach to Donald Trump, I think those were all ultimately the, the major factors in that race. But look, certainly it's, it's going to continue to be an issue. And I think that as Republicans, uh, we've got to embrace it head on and really be much more uh, assertive with our messaging about it. You know, I think that there's uh, some instances, quite frankly, where you know, positions that Republicans are taking on this issue are not in lockstep with where voters are at. And I think having a nuanced uh, approach and being able to explain it articulately uh, is something that we're going to have to do moving forward. Okay, I really would love to hear you expand upon that. What does it mean to embrace this issue head on and have a more nuanced approach if you're a Republican? One, I think, you know, if, if you are a male talking about this, I think you've got to lead with empathy. I think you have to be understanding about situations that that women find themselves in, that this by and large is not a a choice that women are, you know, looking to make every day. Um, but I think we've got to lead with empathy and understanding. Uh, and and I, I look personally, I, I don't think that, you know, that the the excessive bans, the six week, uh, you know, I, I just don't think moving forward, that's where the voters of Georgia are going to be. I don't think that's where Americans are going to be. But at the same time, Bill, I think we've got to also do a really good job of holding Democrats accountable on their position. I don't think that they um, are forced to answer what limits or what terms they want to put on abortion. I, I know that there are the uh, majority of Democrats uh, simply refuse to say that. And and some of them favor late-term abortions. And, and I think that's a losing issue as well. So I think we've got to put Democrats on defense as a party. But to do that, we've got to be articulate and, and show empathy about the issue. It, it strikes me that when you say Republicans need to show imp- empathy toward women, that's a really excellent point because it's not something we saw much of, I don't believe, uh, when Georgia debated its what it became its six-week uh, ban a, a couple of sessions ago. But here's my other question. Show empathy but still support limits. You're likely to have candidates in the 26th uh, election cycle. What are you going to counsel your candidates to do about abortion to it, here in Georgia, to stick with that six weeks, to say, yes, the six week ban is appropriate. We ought to revisit this and expand it a bit. How are you going to handle that? 
Yeah, no, I think I think it's going to be case specific on on candidates. You know, I, I think each one is different. You know, Bill, when I look at obviously, you know, candidates that are running uh, in swing districts coming up in 2024, uh, whether it's state house, state senate, I think they're going to have to have really good answers to this question. Uh, but moving forward to 2026, I think time will tell. Right, look. I think there's going to be a lot of movement uh, in this conversation uh, after 2024, uh, you know, depending on who's in the White House, depending on if this is an issue that Congress wants to take up and wants to look at a 15 week ban. Uh, So I think all of those things are going to have implications for anybody wanting to run statewide in 2026. But I think that they're going to have to have a really good answer. Thank you. I think it's so um, right for Republicans to lead with empathy because No woman has ever gotten pregnant by herself without a man being involved. But it tends to be men having these conversations amongst themselves in political circles. Um, But, Stephen, what do you do? What do Republicans do in a state like Georgia? Because the conversation at the primary level is so different from the general election conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And and, and that's sort of the dynamic that I think a lot of Republicans looking at statewide office are are going to find themselves in. Um, But look, I I think for for a core constituency of our primary voters, certainly this is their number one issue. Um, I'm just not sure if that is a growing number uh, and, and what that number ultimately looks like. You know, when we can, you know, we obviously you guys are well versed in the polling and, and what voter sentiment is over the last year, two years, three years. It's a it's the economy and it's crime and it's education. Uh, I, you know, for me, abortion falls much further down that ladder. And so I think that, um, you know, candidates looking to build out their platform would be wise to focus on those things that that voters really, really care about. Richard, I'm glad you mentioned the Republican primary debate because we last year we saw so many Republicans, including Senate candidate, Senate nominee, Herschel Walker, say he supported an outright 100% ban, no exceptions on abortion. We've heard many politicians, elected politicians, who say that's their personal support. They they personally support uh, more restrictions on abortion. And yet, after the Georgia Supreme Court's initial ruling a few weeks ago upheld Georgia's anti-abortion law, I went back to many of those Republicans and said, hey, are you going to push for more restrictions now? The answer I got from most of them was basically a not yet. Right. And a not yet. And I think they may need to wait to see if they're honestly going to have a Republican challenger going into a primary. Are they going to have a primary race where they need to think ahead on this issue? Because the Republican base is so conservative on this issue. And this is such a winner in a GOP primary to be very, very conservative on this issue. Or it has been in the past. And Governor Kemp, um, although he signed the six week ban and uh Our polling told us that was not a popular decision at the time among all Georgia voters. And the Republican primary, it really safeguarded his right flank um, with Georgia Right to Life, with so many of those pro-life groups that are really essential to the GOP base and getting elected in a GOP primary. Um, But uh, to Stephen's point, he also layered on these all of these other issues once it got to a general election. He didn't really barely talk about abortion in the general election, but it was a lot about uh, standing up for Georgia during the election. It was a ton about the economy, gas prices, all those kinds of messages that really were effective. Yeah. The way I always kind of viewed it is if he was, if it brought, if it was brought up to him by a voter, if a reporter asked him about it, a debate, governor can't talk about it, but he did not lead with that issue. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, you know, the governor's always going to stand for life. And I think that's right, Greg. Um, but you know, there, 
he delivered on so many other things uh, during his first term that he had such a, an outstanding record to run on, whether it was the economy, teachers, you know, public safety, that he was able to articulate those and lead with those. And again, those are the issues that really moved voters. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams spent a short time during her campaign uh, highlighting abortion rights as her number one issue. But then it got, I think, and and Greg and Patricia and Stephen, you all may uh, have seen this more closely than I did. It got lost in a welter of other issues that she kept throwing out one after the other. And the question is, had she stuck with the abortion message, would it at least given have given her a better opportunity to, to come closer to Governor Kemp than she did. Yeah, I think also for Abrams, um, she did have so many other issues. Yeah. We literally lost track of the number of issues that her campaign was running on and running toward. On her abortion issue in particular, she differed a little bit from Jen Jordan, who was running for attorney general. Mm. Jen Jordan had articulated a limit that she would be comfortable with here in the state because the the question is, if not six weeks, then what? Jen Jordan said at viability, which is about where it is right now um, or where it was before at 20 weeks, um, although it's a little bit later than that. Uh, but Abrams really never did articulate a limit. And Stephen, you mentioned that do you think Democrats in these general elections need to do more than that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's right. But, you know, I think uh, it's also talking about, again, going back to those core issues that voters resonate with. You know, I think. Uh, First of all, you know, Bill, to your point, I, I don't know that there's any issue that Stacey Abrams and her campaign could have thrown against the wall to, to beat Brian Kemp. Uh, and I think that's why you saw so many of those issues kind of coming out. I think they were really, especially at the end, and, and Greg, you've covered this and Patricia as well, testing a lot of things out and seeing what would stick. And, and uh, I don't think any of them did. But I think for Democrats, particularly, uh, you know, moving forward, especially with with Biden at the top of the ticket, they've got to articulate their message about the economy, education, public safety in a much stronger way. I think if they want to be competitive uh, and to be successful uh, in Georgia. And you did have sharply contrasting views on abortion, even from Democrats. I mean, last year we reported on it. Uh, Stacey Abrams told me in an interview that if she was elected, she would push legislation to protect the right to an abortion before the point of fetal viability, which is considered to be about 23 weeks into pregnancies, while Senator Raphael Warnock, by contrast, didn't take a position when I pressed him on whether he'd support any limits to abortion if there was a new legislative push to reverse the U.S. Supreme Court ruling. So we have seen a divide there. But as we mentioned, we've definitely seen a, a divide among Republicans. I, I do want to th – this is also going to become a prime issue, of course, uh, not just in next year's presidential race, but also on the debate stage tomorrow night in – where am I going? Miami. I'm going to Miami <laughs> right after the show. Oh, I forgot I was going to Miami in, in November. <laughs> I'm checking in my flight very shortly. Um, but it's the incredibly shrinking debate stage right now, Stephen, because we now have the final five who will be on stage tomorrow. Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie. Uh, Mike Pence has dropped out of the race. Two other long shots who were in previous debates will no longer be there. But none of those five have broken out as an alternative Donald Trump do you think in your heart of hearts it's too late for that to happen? Uh, no, uh, but I, I think the window is is closing. And, and look, in, in my estimation, this is a, this is a three horse race uh, at this point. Um, you, you know, you can say what you want about I, I love Tim Scott, um, big fan of his. Not as much a fan of Vivek Ramaswamy, but um, look, I, I think it's Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis at this point. And I think for that to happen, Greg, I think. Uh, 
look, I, I think they will tell you that one, either Ron or Nikki are playing for first place in Iowa. But I think as a backup, whoever, because remember, it is a caucus state. There are delegates that can get split. Um, you know, I think whoever comes in second in Iowa, um, everybody has to get behind that person heading into New Hampshire. And then I think from there, you know, it's a long, long road. But I think that there is a window for this thing to get to a two-person race. Stephen, do you think there's an appetite in the GOP base, a a winning appetite for somebody besides Donald Trump? I think there is, uh, but the situations and the circumstances have to coalesce and they have to line up. But look, presidential primaries and, and Iowa caucus, we've seen crazy things happen, right? You know, people forget that Joe Biden, you know, didn't win until South Carolina. Uh, and and then the base started rallying behind him. And that was a much more split, divisive um, primary. Uh, obviously, there's different dynamics. Um, but yeah, look, if you look at the numbers, if you consistently polling has shown that R- Donald Trump is getting between 40, 45, maybe 50 percent in some states. But there's another 50 percent of people are saying, hey, I want someone else. Um, and, and but the the situations are going to have to be created for that to happen. And right now, the Republican strategy, Bill, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Healy are going all in in Ohio, in Iowa, I should say. Chris Christie's basically camping out in New Hampshire, hoping that he can have that field mm-hmm. to himself. And Donald Trump, he's boycotting this debate for a third time. Yeah. Um, I, but I want to go back to, that's right, we're, we're not going to see uh, Trump on uh, the stage. I suppose if you're running the Trump campaign, you say, yeah, why should we bother? We're so far ahead in all of the polling. Um, but but here's Stephen. You said something that I think is interesting. You said whoever comes in second in the Iowa caucus, everybody you use the word everybody's got to get behind to see about a possible alternative to Trump. But who is everybody? I mean, who, who are the people who are going to lead the charge moving to New Hampshire that will say um, get behind a Nikki Haley probably or a Ron? Descent. I don't see where that energy comes from. Well, I look, I mean, again, I, I think it is it, it's an uphill climb. It, it certainly is, Bill. But I think if those other candidates throw their support behind that Trump alternative, I do think that there is a path, especially in a state night like New Hampshire, where uh, Nikki Haley is doing very well. You mentioned Chris Christie. I think that's a perfect example. Um, look, I think Chris Christie has offered a really strong and uh, unique criticism of Donald Trump. Um, But look, this is to me, he is running a vanity campaign. He is running in New Hampshire. And I don't think that's helping someone take on Donald Trump. And so, Bill, to your point, I think he's going to really have to look in the mirror, especially after Iowa and say, you know, do I want to do this for myself or do I want to support someone who can ultimately? Maybe, maybe uh, Christy and Dean Phillips could get together and have a conversation about <laughs> yeah. vanity campaigns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I do think that Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds getting behind mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis yeah. well before the Iowa caucuses, that's huge. And she has been a supporter of Donald Trump's in the past. And she just said simply, I don't think Donald Trump can win. I mean, I think that's the kind of movement that's going to have to happen. But it's going to have to also be some of these people in the race Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, where they throw their support, I think really can matter if it's them against Trump. But I don't know if that's where it's going. Yeah, look, and and generally working in this world, I'm I'm generally skeptical of the power of endorsements. I think they they are very 
far and few between where they matter. I do think this is one that matters for Governor DeSantis. I think it's going to have an impact in this race. And again, I think it's just another data point that shows that it's a Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump showdown in Iowa. And the quicker we get there, I think the better off uh, uh, Trump alternative. Well, stri- s- s- real quickly, Stephen, particularly in a caucus That's competition, right. <laughs> an endorsement by the governor can have enormous impact because of the way a caucus operates. Absolutely. And, and look, I think she's got such tremendous standing. Uh, she's extremely well-liked in that state. Uh, and I think, again, going back to uh, the women vote, I think that could uh, really help deliver that for uh, Ron, particularly Bill, to your point, in a caucus environment, in a caucus setting. And so uh, still a lot of time left. Um, and and it's going to be interesting to watch how it all unfolds. The caucuses are such labor-intensive operations, and we should note that Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones was up in Iowa just a few days ago uh, working on a caucus for Donald Trump. When we return, we'll examine how a fight to censure a Democratic lawmaker over her criticism of Israel has divided Georgia Republicans. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics quite like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. It's all one word, all spelled out ajc.com slash politically georgia newsletter before we get into our next segment we want to take a somber moment here to acknowledge the death of rose ida lubian an israeli american and delwini high school graduate who was killed in jerusalem lubin served as a police officer for the idf and was stabbed and killed near the old city of jerusalem at a gate where i was just at and where thousands of tourists and residents use every day with all that's going on we want to pause and remember the human toll of the hamas israel war you know, um, Greg, yesterday on the show, Sam Olins talked about the fact that there's a small population of Jews in the world. There's a small population of Jews in Georgia. And he said almost everybody knows someone who one way or another is um, dealing with what the war means in Israel. And uh, Rosaida Lubin is an example of just that, someone from our own backyard who who voluntarily went to Israel and um, made Aliyah and and fought in the IDF. Um, it's very moving. Yeah, and and someone who is literally you know in a part of my community. I didn't know yeah. her her family. Uh, I don't know them yet, but um, her family yet. But they live in Dunwoody. I live in Dunwoody, and she graduated from the high school. My kids will one day graduate from. Well, let's keep the subject on Israel because there's growing pushback among Democrats over Israel's war with Gaza, but Republicans are now jockeying to show support for the Jewish state. Let's take a look at the dueling efforts by Georgia Republicans that's going on right now to censure Rashida Tlaib, the, Mich- the Michigan Democrat, 
and only Palestinian American in Congress. Both Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rich McCormick are pushing to punish Tlaib for accusing Israel of genocide and making other anti-Israel comments. Marjorie Taylor Greene's original censure measure was tabled by the House last week, and she slammed Rich McCormick for being one of the 23 Republicans who voted against it. Now Rich McCormick has his own censure resolution with House leadership support bill. Well, yeah, and here's the difference between the two motions. Marjorie Taylor Greene's motion to censure uh, was based on the fact that she said Tlaib was part of a, quote, insurrection in which some 300 pro-Palestinian demonstrators uh, were, uh, were, were active in a demonstration. In which building were they in, Patricia? They were in the Cannon House. Okay, they were in the Cannon Building. They were not in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Capitol itself. And they were adamant and boisterous in their support for the Palestinian people. But to call it an insurrection and somehow compare it to January 6th was a bridge too far for those 23 Republicans and the Democrats as well. Um, And so it failed. McCormick comes along and takes out that language. It's not not an insurrection, but says that basically... Rashida Tlaib has, in in, in in any number of instances, uh, been anti-Semitic in her commentary. Just past this past weekend, she accused President Biden of supporting an Israeli state that is waging genocide against the Palestinian people. So his measure um, will probably be, I assume, Patricia, much more palatable to uh, uh, to the House. Well, especially because it's supported by House Republican leadership. I mean, that's really the key. And um, Rich McCormick said he went to Marjorie Taylor Greene, offered her the chance to get onto his censure resolution, and she turned him down. Um, Moves like that make people think this has more to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mm -hmm. Donald Trump than it does actually about Rashida Tlaib. So I think it was a space where Rich McCormick could step in, articulate a very clear support for um, the state of Israel and the United States support for um, Israel in this moment that Republican leaders want to embrace um, without getting into the muck of Donald Trump and January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. I think this will also really put Democrats in a bit of a bind right now because I spoke with a Democrat this morning who said that she has never seen the kind of cratering for a party in her career as she has for the Democrats um, on the progressive left since um, October 7th. I want to get into that in a second. But first, to me, this is also a striking level of disunity among the Georgia Republican oh, yeah, House delegation. Sure. Because, you know, over, for years we've seen uh, the Georgia House Republican delegation kind of worked in unity. And now we're starting to start to see the open discord. Uh, I, we know a lot of uh, Republican House members are privately uh, you know, upset with Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of her more provocative antics. But right now we have Rich McCormick and her kind of in an open feud over this. And leadership backing up And leadership McCormick. backing McCormick. Um, but I do want to mention what's happening with that overall Democratic strife. I mean, you know, poll after poll after poll is showing that while both Republicans and Democrats are generally supportive of the U.S. stance on Israel, we're seeing, particularly among Democrats, more liberal Democrats, more diverse Democrats saying that the U.S.-Israel first policy uh, uh, should be reexamined. Yeah, look, I've, I think there's definitely it is definitely causing a very deep rift in the Democratic Party, uh, not just in the response to the ongoing um, conflict in the Middle East, 
um, you know, but also here at home, right? There are uh, at, co at college campuses and universities, there are terrible things coming out, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, student groups and students uh, supporting Hamas and, and all of these terrible things and and Democrats refusing to condemn those things uh, and, and refusing to be in lockstep. You know, I think it's an area where we as Republicans have been very clear that we stand with the people of Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's going to I think it's also causing a lot of angst in the White House for President Biden. I think his response generally has been pretty good on the conflict. But I think that there is growing concern about, uh, you know, the progressive wing of his party. Um, really causing him problems on this issue. And, and in a, again, looking at a race that's going to be so close, uh, I think all of those issues could, could end up hurting him. There are so many different lanes to this entire matter. So, for instance, Stephen, I take your comments about the anti-Israeli demonstrations on college campuses, which in some schools have made Jewish students fear for their safety, um, which is horrifying. Um, and the fact that we need... Uh, a, a public officials to speak out against it is crucial. That's one thing. What we don't talk about quite as much when you talk about the split in the Democratic Party over Israel, because it gets very sensitive in the middle of a war, is a lot of this split is based on attitudes about Benjamin Netanyahu, the fact that he formed a government with the far right, the furthest right wing in Israel, and that um, uh, since that coalition came together, there is no question that the country of Israel itself has been up in arms by the attempt by the coalition to uh, uh, undo the power of the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, and we don't talk about just how divisive that became in Israel before these horrific attacks by Hamas. But they are an underlying part of why there is some democratic um, contention mm -hmm. over where to, how to handle uh, what we do about Israel with a right-wing Netanyahu uh, controlling policy. Who is deeply reviled, as you mentioned, by many Israelis. <laughs> um, Patricia, I can't wait tomorrow to dive into some of the AJC's exclusive polling data that will be released on Wednesday and throughout the week because not only do we have a poll coming out about the overall race between Joe Biden and his potential Republican challengers, whether it be uh, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, but we also have the first poll conducted in Georgia since the October 7th Hamas terror attack against Israel about uh, Georgians' perceptions of Israel. Yes. And over the weekend, we need to mention there was a New York Times Siena poll that showed a pretty big gap between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in a number of battleground states, including Georgia, showed a six point gap, um, which is outside the margin of error for that Siena College poll that had Democrats all over the country. The only phrase is just freaking out. What is going on here? Um, was the conversation and do they need a new nominee? That's not going to happen. Should they start messaging differently? Why isn't he getting credit for X, Y, and Z? Um, I think a poll like ours is going to be really instructive because we do get into the issues and we can look at the trend lines. Um, I would be surprised if we're looking at a six-point race right now, really, between yeah. Biden and Trump. 
not many people really believe that here in Georgia, but they do see erosion of support for Joe Biden among younger voters, voters of color, progressives, and they're worried about that. And Bill, we always like to remind people that these polls are a snapshot. They do not, they're not predictors. They're not saying this is what the race will look like in a year. We've heard over and over and over again from the candidates themselves that, hey, we're a year out. A lot can happen. We remember in 2020 around this time or even even early 2020, we were talking about impeachment being the main driving factor. And it certainly wasn't when when, when the election came. Absolutely. There are snap, snapshot and things can change. But Stephen Lawson, as a political consultant, certainly would say, although we're running out of time, I know it is a moment in which you think about whether you need to reset to move forward. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's got to be flashing red lights for the Biden campaign, uh, you know, especially in a state like Georgia that we all know is going to be so pivotal uh, in the next election. Look, I think Democrats and Joe Biden, you know, they, they rolled out this Bidenomics thing that totally flopped. But I think that the central existential question for him is he's got to figure out how to talk about the economy empathize with people and they're they're hurt right now and figure out how to fix it or else he's he's gonna he's gonna lose well we are a year out and there's a long way to go that is all the time we have for today's podcast you can now hear politically georgia live on 90.1 wabe in atlanta weekdays at 10 in the morning or look for politically georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 p.m each day if you like what you hear we'd love to see a review from you and share politically georgia with a friend Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.